biggest games. The biggest events. Wow, the crowd is on their feet. The biggest stories. This is what you signed up for, Seth. I thought it would be the best in the game. Welcome to the ESPN Esports Podcast. I'm here with Morgan Romine, who was formerly of the Fragdolls. I don't know, are the Fragdolls still around? And then is uh, currently with any key. Hey, Morgan, what's up? Hey, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. So uh, quickly before we get started, could you give kind of like a brief intro on yourself? Sure. So uh, I am uh, an anthropologist who actually works uh, in gaming specifically, and I've studied game development and gaming communities for a long time. Um, I uh, currently work for AnyKey, which is doing diversity and inclusion work in esports and gaming. Um, but my history, I go back <laughs> in sort of in the diversity track for a long time in esports. We founded uh, the Fragdolls team, which is an all-women's professional gaming team that was uh, sponsored by Ubisoft back in 2004 or something of very long time ago. Uh, and we did that for a whole 10 years before the team was shuttered. Um, so the the sort of mission of um, supporting diversity and inclusion in esports is really dear and near to my heart. And I'm glad to be able to still do that uh, with AnyKey in partnership with Intel and ESL these days. Yeah, before we get into AnyKey, let's talk about kind of your time at Fragdoll. So you were with Ubisoft. And why did Ubisoft want to start like some kind of esports team? Um, it was really sort of a lark. Uh, I was working as a community manager for Ubisoft at the time and working closely with the marketing team. Um, and we had some little tournament that we were trying to, to promote. And I went on to, I think it was uh, Ghost Recon Jungle Storm or something forever ago. Uh, and I went online um, on PlayStation Online to play with people and to tell them about this tournament because nobody was signing up for this tournament. And all I got were responses from the other players like, but you're the first girl that I've ever played with online. This is crazy. Which was not an unusual experience for me um, being a woman who played online all the time. Uh, but when I went back to Ubisoft and told everybody about this happening, they were like, wow, that's really kind of a novel thing. And it's really getting a lot of attention. Maybe we should start a team of women who can kick butt online against a bunch of people and help you know promote our games and go to go to tournaments and um, represent Ubisoft. So we hired a bunch of women who are already playing competitively in the Tom Clancy titles. So like the Ghost Recon games and the the Rainbow Six games, and made a team. And so it was the sort of ostensibly for promotional purposes and for marketing uh, and for community building. But for those of us who were the women who were competing, it was really an opportunity to be sponsored to go to a lot of tournaments and events, which is just awesome for us as well. So that's interesting. A publisher decide, decided part of it to dedicate a part of its marketing budget to mm-hmm. create an all-female esports team in 2004 as a way to promote the Tom Tom Clancy games? Yeah, the Tom Clancy games, yes. And, and you know, and also to uh, raise awareness about women in games, it was so seemed like such a unicorn sort of situation where people didn't realize that women played video games, and those of us who were on the team were, were evidence that that was not the case. And we were able to bring a bunch of other women out of the woodwork when they saw that we were playing, going to tournaments, and sort of in the public eye for gaming. Um, we uncovered all of these other sort of in-the-closet women gamers um, who had never met other women who played, um, and we're able to sort of raise the awareness that, yeah, games are for women, too. Very cool. That's really interesting. I mean, from your days at Fragdolls in, like, 2004, I mean, how much has, like, the scene changed in, you know, 
and your time here? The the scene has changed tremendously uh, over the past 15 years, I guess it is. Um, I mean, you know, Twitch has completely changed the, the landscape. Um, League of Legends, I think, uh, in 2011, when that started to really take off, sort of changed how competitive gaming worked um, in a lot of people's minds and being able to do the online ladder and that leading to then L- the LCS competitions. That didn't really exist the same way um, back when we started. We had MLG. We went to MLGs a lot as the frag dolls. Um, but, you know, those were um, open tournaments, so you could go and show up, and if your team was good enough, then you could theoretically play through to the end. Um, but we don't really have that connection as much these days. Um, Counter-Strike still has a little bit of that type of uh, sort of storyline um, from start to finish, but it's just grown so much that, you know, these changes have, have been somewhat significant. Um, but... Uh, you know, and I, I would also say that because it's so big, it's actually harder to find the other women um, and minority groups who are who are competing than it was back in the day, where we would all go to lands, you know, land events together or to an MLG event, um, these smaller tournaments, and you get to meet those people in person. It's harder to do that now, which has I think changed sort of how the community feels um, for those of us who are sort of marginalized in the group. Mm. So because like so much competition has just moved straight up online, or mm. so many of the qualifiers are online. Are you're saying it's like a little bit more difficult for uh you know, kind of the camaraderie to build or even for like female teams to like come up? I think it can be. It's intimidating. You know, like you're playing and you feel like a rando. And if you don't have a team, if you're just starting from scratch and you think, you know, you're actually pretty good at games, but you want to get into the competitive scene, uh, the you know, sort of barrier to entry is really intimidating. You're just, a, you know, a rando and you're an anonymous noob um, with big dreams. And I think it feels like everybody's trying to do that on, on the ladders and climbing the ladders. And back in the day when you had, uh, you know, community, and you had friends that you you started playing with. I think it felt a little bit more supportive, um, but there are also more opportunities these days. There's so many more tournaments, and and I do think that at least getting your feet wet on ladders, for example, is is uh, more accessible. There are more ways to play online. Just online is not necessarily um, that easy for everybody. Um, you know, for example, women players frequently avoid um, speaking online because if they speak online, then they give away that they're female, which makes them target. For all sorts of trolling or comments or white knighting or whatever, it becomes it becomes an issue, becomes part of your play experience, and a lot of women don't want that to be part of their play experience. They just want to be able to compete and to be good. Um, so that that by itself is a is an example of a barrier. Um, so online gaming has its has its you know the online qualifiers uh, has kind of a it's a double edged sword. Mm, I see, I see. Um, you know, I, 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 on your panel yesterday, uh, I know there was a lot of a lot of talk of the FGC and like how the FGC has been able to um, do a better job of being more diverse. What, why do you think that is? Um, I think there are uh, a lot of reasons why the, the fighting game community is more diverse inherently. And they, and they really, when you go to those events, you can definitely see more diversity there than if you go to a Counter-Strike um, a tournament, for example. Um, I think that the games themselves are more accessible. Um, they're on console, you know, so like, it's easier to own a console um, than it is to get a PC rig that can that can you know run your your games at top notch speeds, um, and it's sort of community based. So you're playing with your friends at home first, or you're playing at you know an arcade, you're playing at a bar, you're whatever. You're, you're, it, there's a lot of in person play um, that's sort of built into how the game works as a spectator game, um, and so you have more diversity. People are hanging out with their friends, and then they start playing, and then you know that's how they get into it. Uh, I, I often like to 
tell my fighting game community friends that they're sort of dealing with the second wave problems now of diversity, where they have some of the diversity there, but they're not as don't, not necessarily that great at um, supporting them at, through the higher levels because um, we still don't see a lot of women pushing through. Although we did actually recently ha- on E League, um, it was the Tekken Tekken tournament, I believe, and we had a, a the team that won um, had. Two, two or three women players on mm. it. So we think that the fighting game community is actually still doing a better job than, than the rest of the esports community in terms of supporting um, women in diversity. Um, but it's interesting that they're having to deal with, like, so if you actually, you, we do have diversity here, and now how do we support them? Mm. Um, which is sort of an interesting uh, um, juxtaposition. Yeah, and then, I mean, let's move on to kind of any key. And, you know, why is it important? I guess, you know, I guess it might not be obvious for a lot of people. Why is diversity important in esports specifically? Uh, I mean, you know, ultimately, we feel like diversity helps competition in that if you have a broader audience, you're going to have better competitors. Um, and you have better stories, which is, you know, that's that's what makes watching esports really interesting is you can pick a player or you see a few players or teams who, you know, start, start from where the rest of us start theoretically. You know, we all start playing these games from the beginning from, from ground zero. And then you can watch these teams. Um, become superstars and, and go through trials and tribulations and overcome obstacles. But when you have different types of people doing that, it makes it a much more interesting story. Um, not to mention there's a broader audience. I mean, from a business case, we want to have more people interested in esports, right? So um, we need to be making it more welcoming for women and people of color and LGBTQ communities and, you know, we, and like pe- uh, gamers with handicaps. Um, we need to, uh, Make that make make this whole world more accessible because it'll make it better for business as well as a better community experience. That's that's sort of our fundamental idea. Um, we also think that esports presents a really interesting opportunity for men and women to compete on the same stages because there is no reason why men and women can't compete. I mean, I certainly have a lot of experience uh, witnessing women who are just as competitive and just as good. Um, as the guys when it comes to their skills in competing. Um, I mean, like like women who are, you know, they're, they're rock stars and they're amazingly good at some of these games, but what happens is that they, they, they exit out of the competitive scene for various different reasons. Um, and we want to be able to take advantage of esports as this theoretically um, level playing field. You know, we should be able to get to that point where it's a level playing field and see men and women competing together on these stages. But we're dealing with inequality before we even get to playing the game. And those are some of the problems we're trying to address so that we can ultimately see men and women playing together. Mm. I think you answered uh, a bit of my next question at, with, with your answer, but I, I think I just want to ask because I feel like there will be some naysayers saying that, you know, esports is already level. You know, the only thing that matters is your skill, and by forcing it otherwise is disingenuous. I mean, what is kind of your response to that? So, um, I, I think that that's sort of a false meritocratic uh, argument um, because before we even get into the game, um, we are dealing with different sorts of support structures and pressures. So women, for example, and when they're girls, um, especially when they get to preteen and teenage years, there is pressure to not play video games because they're classified as boys' toys. Um, and, they, I mean, I, I 
personally got a lot of feedback from my family uh, where they were like, why are you wasting all your time playing video games? And that's not something that my guy friends were experiencing the same way, um, which seems like it might be a small thing. But when you're constantly encountering that kind of pressure, you start to think like, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or maybe I'm going to spend less time practicing than I than you know my friends who are also trying to compete. And what we've seen in studies um, that show show uh, sort of differences in um, there have been studies that where people have tried to, to uh, look at the skill sort of inherent skill differences between men and women who play. Um, there really is not a significant um, uh, data that shows that men and women are inherently different. It's it's a matter of how much time they've spent playing the game. So if they have practice, um, then it becomes equal. And frequently we see that women don't have as much experience competing and don't have as many hours put into playing their various games or even competitive games at all. Um, and that's a big that's a big difference when you're when you're coming into a new game. Like if you're coming into Overwatch um, for the first time, uh, it's very likely that a a guy who's 22 and a woman who's 22 um, both starting that game for the first time they're going to have less a difference in experience playing shooters overall on console um, which is going to make put the the woman player at a disadvantage um, not to mention once you do start playing there are a lot of cultural barriers that we encounter as well the flack for being a woman when you when you play online and speak um, people saying that you know women don't play video games and what are you doing like girls shouldn't be here and get back in the kitchen that kind of pressure which there are plenty of women who ignore that or use that to fuel them but there are a lot of women who don't want to deal with it. It's like, I'm here to have fun and if video games are not fun because people are harassing me, then why would I continue to play it? Um, so we sort of are experiencing pressure to get out of games as well, um, which prevents women from even trying to compete in the first place. Um, so that's why we're, we're trying to support women sort of in the, the all of those exit um, exits before or those pipeline problems where either women are um, leaving the competitive scene or uh, refusing to step into the competitive scene in the first place. We're trying to break down the barriers that are preventing them from doing that. Mm. You know, Overwatch League is about to get its first female player right. uh, in Giggory, uh, and she's going over to the Shanghai Dragons. Mm-hmm. Now, do you feel that, like, because she's going to be kind of the first uh, female player in this, you know, brand new league with a lot of money in it and a lot of attention, mm-hmm. that there'll be this kind of added pressure as kind of this uh, gimmick, kind of like Muggsy Bogues when he entered oh, as the absolutely. shortest man in the NBA? Absolutely, yeah. I, I do not envy what she has already been dealing with and will continue to have to deal with. I mean, that's part of that's part of being a pioneer. You know, she is she is a pioneer in this space, and and uh, you know. <laughs> I, I, th- I think she's extremely courageous to be taking this on, and I honestly don't blame any of the women who in the past have been good enough to be there but have declined to be there. We saw that with Romelia in, in um, League of Legends, made it to LCS and then declined to continue with the team because of the pressure and the and that, and uh, sort of the, the intensity of the spotlight, which is already very intense for all of those players. Um you know, we don't want to. We don't want to say it's easy for the guys. It's not easy for the guys either. But I think it's it's twice as hard for women, uh, or for a, the one woman who's going to be um, playing in Overwatch. And Gaguri is going to be hopefully well supported by her team. And that's what she needs to be able to get through that sort of harsh criticism of she's only there because she's a woman, or they're doing this as a as a publicity stunt, or she's not really doesn't deserve that spot. Any of that criticism, if she has a team behind her who can support her and say, don't worry about that stuff. Don't listen to them. You're good enough to be 
here, then I think she should push through. And those sort of support networks, um, if we have those in place, then hopefully she can, can be the example that will encourage other women to strive to be in that sort of top-tier competitive space. Yeah, yeah. I think another interesting dynamic is that, you know, she was picked up by the Dragons, which is currently like the worst team in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, and I wonder if, like... Uh, whatever criticism she is getting, if it would have been the same if, like, she was picked up by, like, a higher-tier team. Like, is this team just trying to pick her up out of desperation? I, I don't know? think that in terms of her experience, it probably wouldn't make much of a difference. Mm-hmm. I think even if, a you know, a higher-level team picked her up, there's pe- there would still be people who would be criticizing and saying that she doesn't deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, I, I do want to touch a little bit on your research because, you know, there aren't a lot of anthropologists or PhDs in anthropology that study gaming. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can only think of one other. There, uh, there, are, there are a few others, yeah. I'd say. But um, uh, working directly in esports, there's certainly not very many. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, what what is it that you specifically have studied or are studying right now? And what are you trying – I mean, what have you found out? Um, well, let's see. I My – my sort of original research was around uh, community-driven uh, design in 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 gaming and, and like game the game development side, um, game developers attempting to make a game based on uh, a sort of free flow of community feedback and that interaction between communities and developers, um, which ties interestingly into esports I think and sort of developers thinking about their esports communities um, and thinking about issues like diversity and and thinking about how can we make a game that will be accessible to uh, larger communities and larger audiences. Um, but more recently, my research has been around diversity and inclusion in games and women in esports, um, collegiate esports as sort of inherently more diverse spaces because we find that um, the, the varsity esports programs that are popping up around the country right now are stemming from gaming clubs that have existed on, on these campuses for a long time and are pretty well gender mixed, honestly. Like, their social environments where people go and play video games and so you find that there's actually a a lot of women who are playing and they're pretty well diverse um so when when they then are creating their sort of esports teams, there's a greater potential for there to be women who would be capable of playing um, and being competitive in those spaces. So we've done studies uh, there. Um, we have also been looking at, uh, and this is all through NEP, and we've published white papers on this stuff. Um, we also studied uh, community moderation, and particularly around Twitch, and sort of what sorts of things help to make a community more... Uh, sort of less toxic, healthier, um, and you know what what makes those things difficult or not? Because often, like in Twitch chat, um, the Twitch chat is is where a lot of the toxicity and criticism can live for um, some of the, a lot of these esports tournaments. So we were looking at solutions for um, how to make those spaces better, uh, and so we you know we studied sort of the community dynamics um and how we found that when the community themselves that themselves are are enabled to speak up about community values and say like hey this is what's actually accepted here we respect one another as human beings we don't use hate speech and we you know try to stay positive just as in some examples if the community is given those those values up front it makes it much easier for them to point back to those when people come in and then end up being toxic it's like it seems like a really obvious thing but not everybody does that, and not all of these, these the sort of tournament streams necessarily do that. And we've seen that that kind of thing can make a big difference. Um, so you know, with any key, we're trying to think of solutions. We do the research first, and then draw solutions and initiatives out of out of those. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Um, if anybody wanted to kind of hit you up or follow you, how can they do that? So I am uh, Roulette on Twitter. That's R-H-O-U-L-E-T-T-E. And I'm always happy to, to answer messages there and, and feel free to at me. Um, but I, we all of our work is on anykey.org. Uh, and there's a contact page there. So if you want to um, ask us about our affiliates program or our research that we're doing or any questions, we also have a Discord. If you send us a DM to our uh, Twitter account, at at any key org on Twitter, um, then we'll give you our invite invite to our awesome sort of secret space Discord where we have a lot of really cool people who are thinking about this this type of thing. Thank you so much, Morgan. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Rachel. I'm here with Phil Alexander, who's the assistant professor of games and co-director of Varsity Esports at Miami Ohio University. Hey, Phil, how's it going? Hi, thanks for having me today. Yeah, yeah, not a problem. Thanks for uh, thanks for being on. Uh, you know, before we get started, I'm really curious. How did esports start at Miami, Miami, Ohio? Well, that's an interesting story. We had a student, uh, Stellani Cyrillus, who now works for Blizzard, who came to me and Glenn Platt, my co-director, one day, and she said, "You know, our esports club is huge." We're doing all these things. We're trying to compete, etc. Uh, why can't we do varsity? Because she had talked to some people who were at Robert Morris, which was the first varsity esports club. And she said, why can't we also do varsity? And so we asked, and there was no reason why not. So behind the strength of that push, we just started to develop things. By the fall of last year, we had teams in place and started competing. Cool. Uh, what teams or what games are you guys currently in? We are currently doing Hearthstone, Overwatch, and League of Legends. We also have kind of a JV program that we call the Hatchery. It's our clever little Red Hawk Hatchery thing. Mm. So we have uh, two Smash. So we have Super Smash Brothers Melee, which is interesting because we have to find CRT television sets and actually bring people to campus. And we also have a Smash 4 team, and we are currently working on a CSGO team. Yeah, yeah, I wonder. Uh, I remember uh, at my high school, for whatever reason, they also had a Melee team. And this is like mm-hmm. 10 years after I graduated. Yeah. Uh, they had actually so many CRTs they didn't know what to do with. They were yeah, just like in the back room somewhere. It's amazing. We were trying to find extras for our tryouts. And I searched the entirety of Miami University, and we only had one. Really? So I had to talk to faculty members who had old TVs at home and have them bring them in in their trunks and just load them in the library. But That's we had some kind of great CRT purge, and I only rescued one from my game lab. So. Yeah. What's funny is, uh, this is kind of getting off topic, but like, high-quality CRTs are now in very high demand by retro gamers. They are. They're very hard to find. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, what about the school? I mean, wasn't the school like kind of like, hey, isn't this a little weird? Like, why are we doing varsity video games? Or were they just like all gung-ho about it? It's interesting because one of the things that I've talked to people over and over again about is the varsity teams that exist are usually in one of three different places. They're either part of like collegiate athletics, where they tend to follow the same trends that football, basketball, baseball would follow, or they're part of student activities, where the clubs are, so they operate the way a club would. But in our case and in a few other special cases, the varsity esports programs are actually housed in an academic division. So ours is part of the program I'm in, Interactive Media Studies. So we report to the dean in terms of what we want to do. So the reaction on campus has been pretty solid for the most part, but like the real convincing is making sure the dean understands what we're doing so that she'll allow us to keep going. So, And our dean has been awesome the whole time. I see, I see. Uh, you know, just for kind of my background, uh, like how big is Miami, Ohio? We have about 20,000 students total, including grad students. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty sizable chunk. Yeah, it's not It's not a small school. It's not huge by any means. Yeah. And it feels smaller than it is because the divisions are kind of all packed together. But. I see, I see. You know, I've, I've noticed that, you know, there have been a few uh, universities, like, jump in on esports. And it's been, you know, some of the, 
the, the smaller universities, you know, you haven't seen like the big names really go all in. Why do you think that is? Well, one of the things that we have noticed is that when we talk to some of the bigger schools, they're having a harder time figuring out where to put things and how to manage it. So I think really the size of the campus gives you a better sense of how you can manage what you're putting together. Uh, for example, Robert Morris, which was the first school, the reason they had so much success is that their actual athletic director was the one who decided to start varsity esports. So from his position, it was very easy for him to understand where to position it. In other places, like with us, you have a professor walking up to the dean saying, hey, we want to start a team. Is that cool? And so there's a lot of rules to go through. And I think with larger universities, they're not quite ready to make that jump from things that are club-based to things that would be considered varsity. I see, I see. So you're saying, like, there's a bit of nimbleness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have friends that are at Michigan State, for example, where I did my Ph.D., and they have a really, really good club scene. And we've played against them in tournaments before. But they haven't made the move to varsity yet because navigating that, like, the beast that is the administration of Michigan State is sort of daunting. Mm. So interesting. You know, um, what? Do you, well, I mean, what have been some of the, I guess, unforeseen challenges that you've had to face while starting a varsity team? I think that the three biggest challenges we've had is first of all, proving to people that we're legitimate. You know, there's always the person who says, "Well, is that just a club?" And then we have to explain to them the, the difference there. The second problem has been finding funding, and then the third problem has been finding competition. So there's TESPA, there's College Star League, there's CLAW. So there are places to go. But in terms of just doing like regular one-off matches, it's really hard to find other varsity teams to play against. And, you know, I know that at least, um, you know, when... The cha- uh, you know, when LCS and Challenger existed, you know, there was a pretty big skill gap between the two. Um, and then, are you, I mean, what's viewership like? Are people wanting to tune and watch college students play when in reality they probably can't match up the match with the current pros? Yeah, it's been interesting to watch. For the most part, we've had larger audiences than we thought we would. Uh, one night, our Hearthstone match had close to 40,000 people watching it, which is pretty impressive for a campus of 20,000 somewhere we found that many more fans but yeah I think we're still finding our footing and part of that is that you know there's the National Association of Collegiate Esports but beyond that there really isn't anyone who's organized yet and so I think once we have leagues for example we've been in talks with the Mid-America Conference to see if we could create a MAC league so that we could play other schools I think once there are leagues that have set nights and people know the schedule and people know where to look there'll be more fans but now for example we compete in TESPA and TESPA is great because it's designed so that whoever has a club and the passion to play can play. But part of the flexibility that they need is you match up with someone and then you negotiate. Like, can you make it at this exact time? Do we need to move two or three hours? Which is fantastic for players. But for someone like me who's trying to get people to come and watch, it's kind of a nightmare. Because we'll know we're playing Thursday night, but we don't know if we're playing at 5 in the afternoon, if we're playing at 10.30, anywhere in the middle. So I think once we can get some stability to that, it'll start to bring in more of an audience. But Interesting. You know, uh, so you, you, you point to something uh, kind of fascinating and like competitive gaming in that you can do it kind of online, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, except for like fighting games, right? Like it's really hard to do that online because of right. the nature of the game. So, you know, your few kind of uh, fighting game players you have, are you flying them around the country to help them compete, or are they just kind of like uh, on their own? Well, we have just started to do Smash, so they actually did their tryouts right before I left campus to come out to San Francisco. But our general plan is to do all the regional stuff that we can. So for us, we consider regional to be Lexington, Kentucky, Indianapolis, Chicago, you know, probably Cincinnati in the other direction. So it's a fairly big circle. 
But we've talked about national stuff and what we'll be able to do when the time comes. So the other thing that's super interesting with fighting games right now is that there isn't much of a collegiate scene yet. So I think that as that develops, we're going to have to build a new model because part of what's been affordable about esports so far is that if you have an arena and a space on your campus, you can pretty much play anyone anywhere. And I think, for, like with the Smash team, this is going to be an issue. Like, where can we actually play? So. Yeah, I guess that points to another interesting uh, notion, right? I mean, does FGC need a collegiate scene? Because it's always been open tournament. Like, right. if you're 5 years old or 50 years old, you can all compete against the best players in the world. And I mean, you would probably lose, but you right. still have that chance. So do you think fighting games needs a collegiate like league or scene? I think need might be a strong word, but I think that like part of the desire that we see in Ohio is like there's a huge scene in Bowling Green at Bowling Green University. There's a huge scene in Cincinnati. We have a pretty healthy scene considering Oxford's not very big, but there's like rivalries between the scenes. And when we have introduced to them the idea of you know representing your university, there's there's a sense of pride that goes with that, and so I think that they'd really enjoy it. I don't know that the scene calls for it yet. It's kind of like the whole thing with esports, I think, to a certain degree at the collegiate level is let's see which models work and which don't. So we're hoping that now that we've kind of opened the door, so the other schools in Ohio will continue and you know, eventually we'll be able to move and do some other things. I was talking to someone from USC, uh, Ryan, who I was with yesterday, and uh, USC is trying to create a varsity Smash team too. So if they pull that off, there'll be a Smash Melee varsity team at USC in Los Angeles and then one at Miami and Oxford, Ohio. So that's going to be a lot of travel if we want to play each other. But. Yeah, and listeners, uh, Ryan is uh, one of the editors at ESPN Esports. Uh, just just for background right there. Uh, yeah, that's really fascinating. I guess it's something something I considered. And, you know, um, so I know with, like, traditional college sports, you, you look at the high school level or people in the high school age and start trying to recruit those with scholarships and whatnot. I mean, have you uh, is, uh, has a budget been allocated for you guys to, like, say, hey, this is a 16-year-old who's kind of, like, tearing up his local scene, um, and, you know, he's getting pretty good grades, too. Should we try to recruit this person? Yeah, that's one of the things that we, because of our kind of grassroots effort, have sort of struggled with. So we are offering a scholarship for next year, and we're hoping to be adding more in subsequent years. But what we have been doing is trying to figure out, you know, where do we find that next great player? Because one of the things that we've been really fortunate with at Miami is all of the players on our team right now were just Miami students who came out and tried out and made the teams. And we found an amazing level of talent. I mean, our Overwatch team is incredible. Our league team did really well this year, too. So um, we're excited to see what we can find. But at the same time, we're suffering from something that I think other schools will start to see soon, that we're in the center of the United States. So when you're looking for people who are really passionate about games, as good as our program is, people don't always think of Oxford, Ohio first. So um, there's going to be a branding thing that we'll have to get out there and make sure that people know we're here and what we're doing. So. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I guess I hadn't considered that. Um, so then is there, like, kind of, like, a call to arms, I guess, on your end to try to make, you know, Ohio a more premier destination? Like, I mean, you guys do have some facilities, I assume, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the things that we're really trying to do is to remind people of the academic opportunities you have if you come to Miami. Uh, we have a, a top 16 ranked game program. Uh, we have an amazing business program known around the world. Uh, we have great facilities. We have in our labs up to, like, we have, like, a 
four million dollar VR lab. It's just you know, we have we have so much technology, and we're tucked in a place where people don't think of us if they don't hear the name. So, uh, my primary charge, other than making sure that my teams do well, is trying to make sure that people know that we're here. You know, make sure that people realize that you know we were actually the first Division One school to do this. So. Yeah, you know, talking to other uh, directors at, you know, in varsity uh, collegiate esports, uh, one thing that I guess I didn't consider at first is that a lot of your students are really good at school, too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes, you know, I have, I have a friend who teaches at the University of Houston, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes she gets, like, students from traditional sports, and, you know, they kind of treat our classes like an easy right. A. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, like, and there's a whole expose on like these types of classes that mm-hmm. universities make. But are you noticing that a lot of your uh, students in collegiate esports are also like, you know, have really strong GPAs and are pursuing very difficult degrees? They do. Yeah, it's. I would say they're probably amongst our very best students. Uh, we've only graduated two seniors so far. Our team has trended really young, but one of them, uh, Stelani, who I mentioned earlier, works for Blizzard now, and the other one, Adam, is at uh, medical school at University of Cincinnati. Mm. So. Now, I mean, so I mean, I know, I know, universities want to have a diverse roster of like, you know, like we have this athlete who graduated here, and we have this scientist who graduated mm-hmm. here. So, are they then, you know, seeing, uh, you know, esports as a way to filter through some of like the top tier students to see like, oh, here's a student who's doing really well in high school and is super competitive. Is that something like? Do you think that will be a consideration? Uh, that, I think that probably will be at some point. Um, to this point, we have just been looking primarily at students that are already looking at Miami. Um, we've tried to recruit a few players, and again, the, the problem that I've run into is the two people I found that were interested both live in Irvine, California, and it's kind of hard to convince someone to leave Irvine for Oxford if you're <laughs> interested in games. And we have a great program, but if you grew up in Irvine and you know UC Irvine, you know, respect to my colleagues there, it's hard to pull someone out of that community. So. Right. But yeah, I think eventually, once we start to see more people rolling in, there's going to be kind of a consideration of how do we find the ones that match up academically and want to do the kind of work that they're doing on our team and you know, also have the skill level. One of the things that I love about the culture of our teams is that they study together and they actually push each other the opposite way if you would think about traditional sports. Like they pick on each other if someone skips class or if they all have a big coding exam and like five of them are in computer science, they'll sit and study for their exam after practice. So it's really, it's been a very positive experience for most of them. Yeah, you know, I guess uh, I, I guess I'm wondering, like, how long do you think it'll be before uh, that, like, like the, the the faker of collegiate esports comes up and they're just like, oh my god, this guy's like destroying the collegiate scene, and you know, like when this he's gonna go, he or she is gonna definitely go pro. Uh, when do you think that something like that would happen? I think we'll see that really soon, but I actually think we're going to see the opposite sooner. I think we're going to see people like Faker who are done with their esports career, and then they realize that they can pay for college by continuing to play. So I think we're going to see pros that are 25, 26, choosing to come back to the university and spend four years getting a degree so that they can go into Chapter 2 of their life once they're done being an esports athlete. Uh, yeah, and I assume that like they'll probably have some kind of role with the team as well as a coach or manager. Oh, yeah. I'm, I would assume that some of them would still even want to play. I, mean, it's, I think that the supposed drop-off that you hit at 25, I don't think would be enough to knock you out of collegiate competition. So. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And then, I mean, is there anything exciting happening at Miami, Ohio that we should be paying attention to? Well, at this point, we're trying to put together kind of a regional competition for either the very beginning of next academic year or, like, towards the holiday break. 
So there should be information on that soon. Uh, as soon as I know more, we'll be putting that out. We're also putting together a summer camp for young people. So um, I don't know how far people will want to travel, but certainly any of your listeners in the Ohio or Indiana area, um, that'll be available in July, and you can get more info for that on our website. Very cool. And uh, if anybody wants to follow you or follow what you're doing, how can they do that? Sure. Um, everywhere that there's social media, I'm just it's both it's my first name and last name smashed together. So it's Phil with two L's, P H I L L Alexander. So that's on Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can go to RedHawks.gg to find our our page there, and I'm at PhilAlexander.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Esports Podcast.